We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Maybe it's just that you don't know how to use social courtesy. Oh, that's old-fashioned. Watch how Lizzie Post and Dan Post act as host and hostess. They know that courtesy means showing respect, thinking of the other person, real friendliness. Hello! And welcome to Awesome Etiquette. Where we explore modern etiquette through the lens of consideration, respect, and honesty. On today's show, we take your questions on prayers at big family dinners, tossing poop bags while walking your dog, the phrase, it doesn't hurt to ask, and who gets to wear which color at the wedding. For Awesome Etiquette Sustaining members, our question of the week is about lapel pins. Plus, your most excellent feedback, etiquette salute, and a postscript from Laura Claridge on the first revisions to etiquette. All that's coming up. Awesome Etiquette comes to you from the studios of our home offices in Vermont and is proud to be produced by the Emily Post Institute. I'm Dan Post-Senning. And I'm Lizzie Post. And brrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrr
<laughs> life happened through that Gutterson Arena and that UVM hockey team. <laughs> as soon as you started saying, oh, those same seats that I used to sit at with my father, I was thinking to myself about two rows down and just a little to the right from the yep. ones I was most used to. Mm-hmm. But I think that rink, those seats are where I took Pooja on an early date and first introduced <laughs> her to Bill and Maureen, who I think were the seats right next to your father's seats at that time. Yeah, they're one above me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Your parents weren't there that night, so they missed the great distinction of being the first family members to meet Pooja. <laughs> <laughs> and he made it. He made it all the way to the to the very end. So I'm guessing the extra on some end, level. Too. <laughs> it was a it must have been a success. That's the way a five-year-old mind works, right? I think that's a success. I also think, I mean, like, he, he just started skating at Letty, which is, um, Letty Park is a is a local, well-known to every hockey parent and skating parent in the Champlain Valley area. Oh, it Letty, was the nice rink when Letty we were growing Park. up. <laughs> and by nice rink, meaning it actually was enclosed. <laughs> like, Had a heated snack bar and everything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's started his first skating lessons there and uh i think he's seen some of the big guys playing hockey together and so it was cool to see even bigger guys playing hockey and i was surprised he handled all the kind of fanfare and everything really well he was very quiet he's a very loud kid and he was very quiet which i thought was really cute and i tried to like encourage him when when our mascot rally the catamount came by to cheer and yell and he kind of gave this very soft Go cats, go. And I was just like, oh my gosh, that's so cute. <laughs> tell but, me, tell me, was the band there? No, it wasn't because it was early January. I don't think the students are back yet, or if they are back yet, it didn't yeah. feel like it. They did not have the band. They had that kind of more the 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 DJ kind of thing going on. I have this memory of a, a holiday hockey game as a kid when the band wasn't there. And somebody went up to where the band sits above where the Zamboni comes out mm -hmm. and on the metal railing, they used a like a metal knife, you know, just like from the snack bar. Yeah. But to wrap out the the rhythm for the go cats go. Yeah, yeah. But they were able to lead all of Gutterson with a you with know, an, like a metal knife from the snack bar on that railing. I thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. Back in the day when the snack bar had metal knives. <laughs> that is cool. Lizzie Post, I could continue to reminisce and tell stories about various adventures around that Gutterson arena. But we have some questions to get to. Oh, we absolutely do. Let's do it. Let's do it. Awesome Etiquette is here to answer your questions. You can email them to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. Leave a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. Or you can reach us on social media. On Twitter, we are at emilypostinst. On Instagram, we are at emilypostinstitute. And on Facebook, we are the Emily Post Institute. Just use the hashtag awesomeetiquette with your social media post so that we know you want your question on the show. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Our first question of the week is titled Prayer Problem. 
Hi, Lizzie and Dan. Thank you for your amazing podcast and wonderful advice. I would like your thoughts and advice on the following situation. On Christmas Eve, our host, my sister, for a family get-together, mentioned that we would have a group prayer followed by everyone reading a passage from a holy book. My wife, who is of a different faith, had such a startled look that other guests commented, and we unsuccessfully tried to get the host's attention. Then my sister seemed to pivot with what appeared to be a request for everyone to go around the room and mention what they were thankful for, like at Thanksgiving. However, before we knew what was happening, a prayer was started with each person including their thanks with the last person saying amen. The reading then soon followed. I have a couple questions. How to best bring up concerns at the first mention of a group prayer that takes into account small children would be listening, and two, if unsuccessful in bringing up concerns at the beginning, how best to follow up on the matter? Again, thank you. Anonymous. Oh, Anonymous, thank you for the question. This sounds like a tough situation, and I want to just start off by laying a little etiquette groundwork for us, and that's that the the big picture thinking around a, a social evening or or get together is that a host shouldn't be compelling people to participate in something religious and that's mm-hmm. particularly true if you have people of different faiths or anyone who's uncomfortable or or anyone who even might be uncomfortable and that can be a pretty wide net unless mm-hmm. a host really knows the people that are attending well and is pretty familiar with how they approach their own faith and their own spirituality. I'm guessing at, at Christmas at your house where you attend a church with your parents that it, it might be welcome, you know, because like everybody there kind of knows and goes and does the same thing together. Yeah, exactly. And that's even a, a particular holiday that some people celebrate as a religious holiday. And mm-hmm. that might be a, an important component of celebration for them. But there is definitely a line where it is not appropriate, or at least it has the the potential to make people very uncomfortable if you're expecting them to participate and you're not absolutely certain that that's something they're going to be okay with. Mm -hmm. What you do in the moment when you're confronted with this kind of rude behavior is up to you. I think you have more more latitude, more discretion because you are being – I don't want to say confronted again, but you are being put in a situation where – you're asked to make quick decisions. You're, you're trying to evaluate a number of different things, both your own integrity, respect for yourself, and also the social norms and expectations for a get together that's supposed to be a good time. That's supposed to be family and friends getting together to celebrate. So you're saying that there's some latitude here if you get it wrong. Yes. It, yeah. And, and I think some people might say, Oh, this makes me uncomfortable, but I'm going to participate for the sake of the room. I think mm-hmm. for other people that might not be a line that they could reasonably expect themselves to take. Mm-hmm. And I think it is also just as reasonable to excuse yourself and not participate. And I think that could be awkward. That could be difficult, but I think it's easier than trying to challenge the host and what they're doing and trying to convince mm-hmm. them to do something different. And mm-hmm. I don't think it's the best possible outcome, but I also don't think there is any path forward that's going to be easy. And I'm looking for the ones that allow you to maintain the relationship, allow you to get through the evening with things moving relatively smoothly, at least getting over something like this. And then I really liked the idea that if 
if some gentle pushback didn't work, that you could follow up with them later. And then I'm already alluding to the third course of action, which is that right off the bat, if you could get your host's attention without calling them out in front of people and excuse yourself or even ask maybe for a a modification or an approach that would work for you. Mm-hmm. Oh, I really wouldn't be comfortable reading a prayer, but I'd be happy to share what I'm thankful for. Might be mm-hmm. uh, something that you could say that would clue someone in as to where the line that you're drawing is a little different than the line that they're drawing. Dan, I appreciate you talking about some of those more extreme moments where you might not have enough time to say, oh, wait, we don't want to participate in that. And in that case, just kind of quietly dropping back sort of would be a good way to go. And also just the idea that this stuff can happen very uh, quickly, that you're thinking on your feet, you're trying to do as best you can in a moment. I just I really appreciate you highlighting those things. I also think there's a lot of moments where this doesn't end up feeling quite so startling. And it is very easy for you to just maybe not hold hands during a grace or to not say amen at the end of a prayer that's being said aloud to everybody. And you just kind of quietly wait while everyone else takes their moment. And so we see this on different levels where it it can be very put upon you. It can also be something that you can step back easily from. Dan, That follow-up conversation, I feel like if you're not able to catch someone in the moment, for me, I think about this as a good sort of, especially because it's attached to a holiday, kind of like an an assessment or an evaluation, (laughs) maybe not quite that serious. But we often, after our holiday, like for instance, we celebrate Christmas and after, after Christmas, often my family will kind of talk with each other about how everything went, what they might be able to do differently as we've adjusted to having little ones in our family. Again, since my Mm -hmm. sister and I are no longer little, there have been some conversations after the holiday about how next year might go more smoothly. And I think if you can open up a conversation like that with your sister and just say, hey, I really appreciated you trying to pivot to something like a moment of thanks or gratitude, just knowing that my wife isn't a part of our religion. But I was wondering if maybe next year we could structure it like this, you know, you can give a suggestion, just so that she doesn't feel quite so caught off guard, or you don't have to pivot in the moment, we can still do the prayer or the reading or, you know, whatever it is that you want to accomplish to support that that faith that is a part of your holiday. But to have it a little bit more clear ahead of time that it's okay for the wife in this case to step back or we're not going to exclude her, but we aren't going to force her to participate as well. Lizzie, something that I like about your assessment discussion afterwards or your Mm. just check-in discussion. Reflection. (laughs) Absolutely. If I were a host, I would want to know if something I did had made some people feel uncomfortable. The last thing that I would want to do is in in the spirit of wanting to do something nice and significant and meaningful, make someone who I'd invited to my home feel uncomfortable really uncomfortable or even disrespected. And Mm -hmm. I think figuring out a way to convey to Anonymous's sister that this was an awkward moment and it was an awkward moment that read to some other people in the room as well as to you and your wife, I think is, is something that it would, it would be good for a host to know. It might be hard to hear, but I also think done well, it's something that she would probably appreciate knowing in the long term. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Dan, in this question, I can't quite tell whether the kids that were mentioned are the kids of Anonymous and their wife or whether they're other they're kids of the sister. I don't know whether the assessment we're trying to figure out there is based on did the kids feel forced to participate or are you, you worried about exposing the kids to someone who doesn't believe the same things they believe? Which, let's face it, that that's already a dynamic going on in this family, but it might not be one that's openly discussed in this particular moment might have exposed to that. And I do think it's it's something worth being delicate about, but it's also a reality that we do have multiple different faiths and religions and cultures in this country and all over the world, and that that kind of exposure can be a really good and positive thing and even an affirming thing in some ways. And so I think not fearing it too, too much, but again, always being aware that when little ears are around, I think it's it's good to treat it delicately. Lizzie, I really appreciate your approach that's so multidirectional on this one. I, I can't help but have personal reflections when I think about this question. In my wife's family, there are many practicing Hindus. In my family, there are a lot of practicing Christians. We also have a lot of very secular family members who aren't comfortable with a lot of practicing of either religion. And mm-hmm. I, I've noticed a couple of courtesies that have emerged. I am someone who really enjoys learning about different faith traditions and participating where I can. Mm-hmm. And I've so appreciated when I'm with Pooja's family and there is a puja that's going to happen, another word for prayer, that I'm invited to participate mm-hmm. in the ways that I can. Sometimes there are things I'm not supposed to participate in, things that are for mm-hmm. women or certain family members. And it's good for me to know that, no, I'm, I'm not welcome to go join in on that one. Mm-hmm. But having a little bit of information ahead of time and a spirit of invitation and welcome if you want to participate mm-hmm. is, I think, a really nice framework to set up in the minds of families that are navigating these questions. And I think can be a way to approach it that allows people to participate, allows those those prayers that are really meaningful and significant and are often a part of family gatherings to happen without people feeling forced or pressured to participate in a way that that they don't want to. Dan, I want to end this question by just kind of flipping it the other direction and saying that if you aren't going to participate, it's really important that you not try to say negative things or even make little jokey comments about those who are participating. I think that's another way that as you kind of step back and take your own space in that moment to make sure that you're not being rude about anyone else's experience. Anonymous, clearly there's a lot to say about this question. Thank you so much for reaching out to us. And audience, if you have any thoughts on this one, please do give us some feedback. And finally... I'm thankful for being able to believe, in spite of everything, that somehow, someway, the unity we've got here in the Johnson family will someday spread to men and nations throughout the world. For all these things, we are truly and humbly thankful. Our next question is about a doggy debate. Hi, Lizzie and Dan. Since you put out the call for questions, I thought I'd send in a series of questions I've been mulling over ever since I adopted my rescue dog two years ago. My six-year-old lab mix and I walk for 20 or 30 minutes three times daily around our residential neighborhood in a small city. I carry a roll of doggy bags attached to his leash. 
always pick up after him and try to avoid the houses with signs asking people to keep dogs off their lawns. My question is about what to do with the doggy bag during the rest of the walk. If we pass public trash bins, I feel okay tossing the bag in there. But what about on trash days? Is it rude to toss the tied-off bag into the neighbor's bins if they are full and haven't been collected yet? What about after the trash has been collected but the bins are still on the curb? Does it matter what time of year it is? During winter in New England, a doggy bag is not likely to add to the odors in a trash bin, even if it sits there for a week until the next collection. Technically, I think the bins belong to the city, not the homeowners. But I can see where people might feel violated if others are tossing things in their bins. Garbage bins are dirty in nature, and I personally would not care if there were a few extra doggy bags mixed in with my trash, assuming they don't leave the bins dirtier than they started. As a fellow dog parent, I would love to hear your thoughts about doggy bag etiquette and hopefully some feedback from non-pet owners in the awesome etiquette community. Thank you, Mr. Bingley's mom. Oh, Mr. Bingley's mom. Enjoy, enjoy (laughs) all the the wonderful ins and outs of dog ownership. I feel like this could have been an internal monologue of like my nightly walks with Sunny. (laughs) I was going to say, sound like a familiar scene. (laughs) This is very familiar, very familiar. And Dan, I hope I'm not going to, I hope I'm not going to tread on your advice too much. I had a slight variation from our notes. I think that for the most part, everything Mr. Bingley's mom is is doing and thinking about is right on the money, making sure that you do pick up dog poop. Public bins, definitely okay to use. What I love about this question is the next level of detail we start getting into because it's so my brain. I tend to fall under the category of the person who I won't walk up to someone's house and put a dog bag into a bin that's like up near the house. But if it's trash day, and especially if it's trash day and all the trash is still in there, I go for it. I don't worry so much about it if it's trash day and everything has already been picked up and this will be the first thing going in. And it's so funny, Dan. Just like Mr. Bingley's mom, in the winter, I am more prone to do this than in the summer. If the bin is empty in the winter I will, and it's down by the curb, I will be much more likely to just toss something in there. But if it's summer and it's hot, there I will have this moment where I'm like, eh! I'll wait till that public bin that I know is coming up in half a mile or something like that. I understand the the reality of wanting to get rid of a bag of poo that you're carrying. I mean, that's just a, a lot of people can really understand that. I also can really understand not wanting a whole bunch of bags of poo accumulating in your garbage bin. It just is kind of gross. And so I don't come down on the side that like anything is 100% right or wrong, but I'm telling you what I do. <laughs> was that, Dan? I w- I was going to say I love the honesty, but I'm going to say I'll appreciate the honesty. <laughs> I'm so squigged out by this whole question. And yeah, it's and not it's, your topic. <laughs> it's not. And I really wish my six-year-old and my three-year-old were here because they love talking potty say, talk. Can we get Nisha on the topic for this cause, or on the mic for this? Because I think she'd have some good answers. <laughs> and I probably ruined them because I... I I'm I'm pretty practical, but occasionally the squeamish side comes out, and there's no question it delights them that I am not delighted by the potty talk. Yeah. But I I also think it's that squeamishness that makes me feel like the official answer is I probably would not or would not suggest putting dog poop in someone else's trash. 
And go. my thought there is that if, if I was sitting back in my house enjoying a hot cup of coffee in the morning and I just got the trash out for pickup, I'm looking out at the snow falling and I, I watched people walking by and putting poo into and I guess I would call it my trash can. And I know technically I like, yeah, it belongs you- to the city, but it's my trash can because I put the stuff in it. I bring it back to the house. In this visualization, are they coming all the way up to the house or are they doing it down no, down even, like away from the house? It's even just doesn't away matter. from doesn't the house. Because okay. I'm going to go down. I'm going to pick that. I'm, I'm going to take it by the handle, bring it back up to my garage or behind and my house. And the thought that or, there might be a bag of poo in there it just does not sit well with you. It's your dog. Your house is within walking distance. There are <laughs> other public bins around. And and no, it's not uh, a, an offense that's so egregious that I would never forgive someone or that I would call my neighbor <laughs> or that I would even open the door and yell out at them. No, none of those things. But that little grumpy old man in me would would have the thought, that's not nice. They shouldn't do that. I wish mm-hmm. or, or I wish they wouldn't do that. And that's the thought I would have if someone was walking up to my house for it, for sure. Like, I think I would I would put myself in that camp of like, oh, come on, really? You're going to like walk all the way up to my house to do that? <laughs> like, I, I, I definitely follow that. And even the, the level of specificity, if, well, if it's freezing out, then <laughs> it's not going to smell oh, as much. This could even sit around <laughs> for a week and it shouldn't bother you. But the, the specificity of that distinction tells me that there are things about it that could bother you, that there are reasons people wouldn't want poo sitting in the trash that they bring back up to their house and is it before or after the pickup how about you just carry it with you till you get back to your own house or you get to that public receptacle that's the i think the official answer and having said that whoa 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 you're calling uh, that the official answer uh, (laughs) yeah i'll go back no (laughs) so that would be what i would call the official answer and I, did you hear that audience? <laughs> I fully appreciate Lizzie Post that it's not for you the practical concerns of the person walking the dog factor in, let's say, a more significant way. So I have to peel back the curtain just a little bit further. I definitely, as I as I mentioned, I would be annoyed if I saw someone walking up my driveway and dropping it in. And at the same time, I also think that's where my brain would flip and be like, yeah, and I know what it's like. I don't want to carry around a bag of poo with me on a walk either. And I am I am not that person who keeps my trash bins really pristine. Um, I am lucky if I remember to spray them out a few times a year. Like, it's just not – it's not the place I'm trying really hard to protect. And when I – when I stop and have that moment, it's what allows me to get more permissive about it, Dan. Because like you, I, I mostly I just don't like people like touching my stuff. I don't even like it when people litter on my front lawn. I mean, most people don't. But like, like, I'm just like you, like, come on, why, 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 you know? And while I would never litter on someone else's front lawn, the poo one is one where I've said to myself, okay, I might not love it when it ends up in my trash can. And at the same time, I totally get it. You know what I mean? And that's that's where the permissive comes from because i feel like in spirit i'm very much so with you dan i'm like hey just carry it with you and then the other part of my like the devil and angel pop on each side and the other one's going hey but just toss it in garbage it's a garbage this was there for and then it's like hey but you could just carry it it's no big deal hey but i could go back and forth all day long on this one I also appreciate that you live in closer proximity to other people than I do. I um, don't have... It'd be weird for someone to walk up your driveway and use your trash can. (laughs) It would be very weird, but it is a a point of discussion between I and my one neighbors, also happening to be my parents, 
about who lets whose dogs out when and where they go and where their regular bathroom spots are. It's totally because you don't have fences. Yeah. In the very small neighborhood, in quotation marks, that I live in is <laughs> a point of discussion between the neighbors. <laughs> Mr. Bingley's mom, thank you for this question. Clearly, there are a lot of perspectives, and we want to hear from the rest of our audience on this question, too. What do you do? What do you feel comfortable doing? What do you wish others wouldn't do when it comes to depositing the doggy bag? You're not a bad doggy, Penny. What you did just wasn't nice, Franksy. But I guess we weren't nice to you, were we? We love you, Penny. We always will. Our next question is titled, Baffled by Requests. Dan, I feel like this one's right up your alley. Oh my, yes. Hi, I really love your show. My question is about the concept, it doesn't hurt to ask. We have a young, 30-ish, pushy relative who makes outrageous demands. For example, she asked my husband and me to move out of our large summer house for the week of 4th of July so she and a large group of friends could move in. After we explained that we had three events and parties that week that we were planning to attend, she laughed and said, hey, it never hurts to ask. We actually were offended by her asking. Is she right that any demand is fine because it doesn't hurt to ask? She always has a continual list of demands to use our house, boat, car, etc., and always the explanation that it never hurts to ask. How would you respond? Signed, Baffled. Oh, Baffled, I just want to thank you so much for this question. This is a sweet <laughs> spot for me. This is like my etiquette's sweetest spot. And it's actually, it's such a sweet spot for me. I'm, I want to give you the answer that comes the most naturally to me and then tell you that I'm actually working to to get over it a little bit. Because I do think that there is something to that spirit of it doesn't hurt to ask. And giving yourself permission to be connected to the people around you by asking for help or favors or just to do things. And... I appreciate that we don't want to lose that capacity. Having said that, it hurts me to ask for things. I feel <laughs> it. I feel the pressure and the pain of it. And a big part of it comes from the fact that I don't want to put other people in the position of having to say no to me. Mm. I would really much prefer to ask for things where the answer is going to be yes. Hedge and I recognize <laughs> that when you do ask <laughs> – it really is up to the other person. You're asking definitionally because you don't know the answer and the answer could be any of a couple of things. So it's impossible to always guess right, to always ask for things that you can have. And I think yeah. it's okay to ask for things that, that you're not going to get or that maybe you can't have. And I think there's, there's something important about having that skill and that ability. I do think that there is a cost and I think that acknowledging that cost is important. I think there are two potential costs. One, it puts people in a position of having to say no. And for some people, that is something that they're not comfortable with or something they don't like to do. So if you're asking for things that you aren't likely to get and you're repeatedly putting someone in that position of having to turn you down, there is something to it that is, I think, unrealistic and self-centered. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't want that to be the message that I'm sending. And I might be thinking to myself, oh, I would never expect them to move out of their house that week and just make it available to me. But I may as well ask because no harm, no foul. They can always say no. And we're seeing where there is some harm, where mm -hmm. that affects someone's impression of you, where someone sees you as as disconnected from the reality of the request and as as so self-centered that you would think it's okay to ask and put someone else in the position 
of saying no to something that's an obvious no. Dan, I'm with you. I don't mind the idea of encouraging asking. And I even going back to that intro that we did for the show today, the more time I spend with my nephew and my niece, you know, encouraging them to talk to people, to ask things, to engage. It feels really natural and good. And and like you, to a certain degree, asking things can get you really far. And so it's like it's worth to ask. I don't I don't want to diminish that. But I think one of the things that strikes me as really interesting about this question is that the we keep coming to this phrase, doesn't hurt to ask, couldn't hurt to ask, never hurts to ask. And yet the description baffled is written to us does not frame anything in the form of an ask, but says these are demands. And it it shows me one of two things. Either they really are demands or they are asks that have felt so big and over the top that they feel like demands. They're not being asked in a way that feels polite and gentle. They're being asked in a way where the description we keep receiving is that the relative, the 30-ish-year-old relative is demanding things. And that, to me, is a really noticeable difference between someone who's just willing to ask to see and, like, toss it out there, see what you get, and someone who is expecting, who is acting like they have a right to do this. It's one thing when you're that person in the family who's kind of like the carefree person. You know you know that member of the family. They get away with a lot, you know? <laughs> like, they make the joke you don't think that they could really make and everybody laughs. And they ask for the things. You're like, I can't believe you just asked for that. And it worked. You got it. Like, you know, there's a certain charm to that person. That person does not get questions being asked about them in the frame of demand. <laughs> like, they don't get labeled as demanding. You know what I mean? And so it tells me that this 30-something is clearly not doing it the right way. And frankly, I think Baffled's in a really good position to say, hey, listen, we love you. We love that you feel comfortable like thinking that we would do these kind of things. But we have to let you know that the things you keep asking us for are making us a bit uncomfortable. And that while it may never hurt to ask because why not just ask, the way that the ask is coming to us is not making us feel good about it. It does feel like it hurts. And I think that that might just sort of take a little of the laughter out of that, you know, oh, it never hurts to ask, right? <laughs> like that comes at the end of asking for your house on like the biggest summer weekend of the year. You know what I mean? Like, I, I think we're in a place where we can put a little pressure on it and say, hey, this really isn't welcome. Like, we, we don't appreciate these requests that are coming in. I like the way you're moving towards a solution. If yeah. you don't like the way these requests are coming, it is okay to let someone know that you'll let them know when the house is available or you'll be sure to to let everybody know the weekends that family members are I like that. invited to give a call and see about scheduling some time at the lake or whatever it is. Dan, what do you think about also just pivoting towards really direct no's when this comes? Like you don't owe this person anything for them springing a really big, intricate ask on you. Like there's part of me that it's like, you know, when my nephew asks if if we can go do something crazy and I'm like, no, we can't like we can't do that. Nope, can't do that. Sorry. Nope. You are not jumping off the roof today. You know what I mean? Like, could you treat it like that where it's just oh, consecutive? So much is communicated with tone, right? <laughs> my kids know when the asks have wore out based on the kinds of responses. There's the patient knows and then there's the, okay, let's move it along now. <laughs> You're <laughs> being annoying nose. <laughs>
Baffled, thank you for bringing up the phrase, it never hurts to ask. For someone who finds the ask painful, it was really fun to take a little bit deeper look at this assumption. Well, Johnny's rude and selfish. He doesn't think of others. He won't take turns. And he always seems to be mad at somebody, always shoving or bossing us around. Our next question is about a dress color conundrum. Hello, I am the mother of the bride. I chose my dress almost two years before my daughter's wedding, so as to avoid issues with my dress color and the colors of my sister's, aunt of the bride, and mother's, grandmother of the bride, dresses matching, if you will. In conversation with my mom, I was just told that one of my sisters chose a dress in the same color scheme. I'm wearing eggplant which I really feel should be a color that I love and thought of as uncommon and therefore would allow my sisters and mom to choose any color other than that. I mentioned it to my daughter, the bride, with her first response being the same as mine. What are the etiquette rules in this circumstance? Thank you for your time, Amy. Amy, thank you so much for the question. This is one that I have a little bit of frustration with because I tend to come from a place of... I personally don't think it matters if you're in the same dress color as other people. This is about the couple. It's not your day to stand out. And even though we honor mothers, um, especially on wedding days, it's not about the mom. It's about the bride. And so as long as you're not wearing a white dress, I think everybody's in good stead. And I understand that not everybody holds that perspective. And typically we do say that especially the mother of the bride kind of gets to pick her her color and then if it's a concern of hers, other people should choose other colors. So from like a traditional etiquette standpoint, Amy actually is in a really traditional position of being able to say, hey, Sister Betsy, I'd really appreciate it if you picked a different color. I had chosen eggplant and I've had my dress picked for a long time. I'd appreciate it. I mean, and that's really all you can do. You can't kind of stop someone from choosing a different dress. And we've even heard horrible stories of people knowing they weren't supposed to wear a certain color, saying they weren't going to wear that color, and then showing up in the color at the actual ceremony. Um, like really bad form. And so I think the best thing that you, you can do here is to take a deep breath and r recognize that it's not a have to, that nobody actually... There is no like etiquette law that says your sister can't wear the same eggplant color as you. And I would say all colors are really options here. There are few colors I feel like that are really like, oh, colors nobody will pick, you know, unless we're talking about like neon orange or something like that for a wedding. And even that, you know, in some cultures, that's going to be a, a really prominent color. And so... I think it's just worthwhile recognizing that while it can seem really personal, it can seem like this is your moment to stand out. It's really about the bride standing out and that you can't also dictate what all the guests wear. Someone else is probably going to wear eggplant to this wedding. And I think the more that we get comfortable with that idea, the less of an issue you're actually going to even have at hand. Lizzie, I'm learning as I'm listening to you right now. I <laughs> appreciate the clarity about there being sort of a more traditional etiquette. Let's just call it a courtesy that I like you that. Would allow the, the mother of the bride, if 
if she picked her colors early enough that that would be something that other people might recognize and and avoid and leave leave as something for her like mm-hmm. a choice that she gets to make and then something that's unique about her on that day if that traditional courtesy mattered to you and you wanted to let the sister know and fully recognizing that it's ultimately up to her and her choice and that it's an ask or a request what route would you go not being as clear about the the sort of traditional courtesy and frankly the more contemporary approach that you focus on your own attire and feeling good about what you're wearing Mm -hmm. i had been imagining that the the bride herself was probably the person with the most standing to raise a question about it and Mm. i was wondering if it would be the the bride that would say something if you were going Mm -hmm. to just let someone know that the mother of the bride was feeling this way would you suggest the mother do it or the bride in this case i think the mother needs to do it it's her sister i'm i'm even thinking going to mom going to grandma was like a step unnecessary um Mm -hmm. it, it it immediately sounded like a sibling fight like tattling on your sister and so I feel like the best thing to do, especially just just given the ages that like and I know we can all have issues with our siblings at any age. We can have family dynamics at any age. (laughs) Will and I get along beautifully all the time. (laughs) You guys do. It's ridiculous. Um, But no, I think this is not something to bother the bride with. I think this is something that the older adults should be able to handle among themselves. And that calling up your sister rather than calling up your mother. And again, if family dynamics are such that mom has to be – grandma, excuse me, has to be the one to dictate all this, fine. But I think that t- keeping it away from the bride is the best thing possible. Keeping the bride and her partner – I think free of as many of the squibbling details and and the issues and the arguments and the he said she said he did they did I think is really important. The 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 couple is dealing with a lot of big decisions. One of them being I'm about to commit my life to somebody else. It's not always a firm ground feeling during the engagement time and so I feel like the less you can I think I'm going to use the word bother, bother a bride with details like this, the better. So mom, go directly to your sister, handle it directly with her. Um, I think that's really going to be the best way to go. And again, recognize that you're making a request, that it's not a demand, that it's not a forcible applied thing. But you just say, you know, I was really hoping to kind of stand out or I was and I mean, maybe taking ownership of that. I've said like three times you shouldn't be the one trying to stand out. But if that's the if that's actually what's going on here, maybe calling it like it is is worth it. That way you're the one calling it like it is, not someone else. You know what I mean? But I think just saying, you know, I would really appreciate it if you'd consider picking a different color um, or if you would pick a different color, you know, pick your language, think about what works for you, but recognize that you're making a request of someone else. That had been my parting thought as well. I was really wondering if there might be a relationship between the sisters that allowed for this to be an easy ask where it's not so fraught, but it becomes a a question of just letting someone know how you feel that you'd really been looking forward to this. You picked this dress out a year and a half ago and you really love it. Um, and you were, you were hoping that you would be the only one in eggplant that day. See, I think that sounds like a really reasonable request when you say it like that, Dan, I would probably acquiesce to that. <laughs> I appreciate your reasonable consideration of my offer or my request. <laughs> 
And Amy, we appreciate your question. It's certainly given us a lot to talk about. And I'm sure with the wedding season beginning, and I know it will continue through the spring and summer, your question will be a help to others in our audience. I wish I could say this is the end of it, but things never seem to work out that easily. Thank you for your questions. Please send us updates or feedback on our answers to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. You can leave a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. Or you can reach us on social media. On Twitter, we are at emilypostinst. On Instagram, we are at emilypostinstitute. And on Facebook, we are the Emily Post Institute. Just use the hashtag awesomeetiquette with your social media posts so that we know you want your question on the show. If you enjoy Awesome Etiquette, please consider becoming a paid subscriber to our Substack. You can find out more by going to emilypost.substack.com. You'll get an ads-free version of the show and access to bonus questions and content, including our discussion threads and community chat features. Plus, you'll feel great knowing that you help to keep Awesome Etiquette on the air. And to those of you who are already paid subscribers, thank you so much for your support. It's time for our feedback segment where we hear from you about the questions we answer and the topics we cover. And today we have feedback from Anonymous on not wanting to tell others which perfume you're wearing. Aha! Our feedback has begun, Dan. Hi, Lizzie and Dan. I was so interested to hear about the lady who feels it is a very personal inquiry when folks want to know exactly what perfume she is wearing. I can see it from her point of view. Perfume is an intimate kind of thing in many ways. Also, as Dan said, perfume has a social side to it as well. People detect lovely scents, and some get excited to know what the other person is wearing. I confess, I am like that, but usually not with strangers. That said, I have noticed that those I know who I ask this question of usually seem to feel flattered and willing to spill the beans. LOL. (laughs) One shouldn't assume, but at the same time, I think there's no cut-and-dried rule in this area. My suggestion to the lady who is vexed by this is for her to say, as warmly as she can, oh, thank you so much, but I never tell. Then if (laughs) people persist, (laughs) which they shouldn't, she could follow up with one of Dan's great lines if she feels up to it. Perfume makes me so happy, even those little fold-out things from magazines. It gives me a temporary lift, like my brain cells are doing a little dance. Perfume is often also a luxury, so I get why this seemingly innocent topic can be a bit of a minefield for sure. People may judge, oh, she wears that, or oh, I wish I could afford it. Here's something that I don't care for. A person who admires a necklace I'm wearing, which I like, who will then reach out to pick up the necklace and look at it while it's still on me. Feels invasive to me, no matter who does it. Oh, I like that distinction. I like that distinction. Thank you, Anonymous, for giving us a little food for thought and for spilling the beans on how you would handle this particular situation. And thank you for sending your thoughts and updates. Please do keep them coming. You can send your next piece of feedback, update, or etiquette salute to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. You can also leave us a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. It's time for our Postscript segment, where we dive deeper into a topic of etiquette. And today we're going to look at a reading from Laura Claridge's biography of Emily Post, daughter of the Gilded Age, mistress of American manners. 
This reading comes from pages 291 to 293. Bear with me, audience. This is a little bit of a long one, but I really liked it because it was a section that described some of the changes in the 1927 edition of Etiquette, which is the second edition. So this is Emily's first chance at revision. It's her first chance at at kind of taking the feedback that she got from her audience and applying it to the book. And I thought that was a really kind of interesting, an interesting moment to explore in her life. So we're beginning on page 291, chapter 46. The 1927 edition of Etiquette, appearing the year her son died, reflected Emily's growing awareness of life outside the circle she knew best. The booming post-war economy had contributed to a confused new social blend, the same people showing up at a speakeasy one night and a Southampton dinner party the next. How did, how should, best society, whatever that was, act these days? Americans had witnessed radical changes over the past five years since Etiquette's original publication. Emily explained that the increased pace of living embodied by the automobile, airplane, radio, and as well by apartment dwelling had created a new sensibility, even allowing for a young woman to go out alone with a man. The new car culture especially had changed the rules. In 1921, Warren Harding had governed a nation that boasted one automobile for every 11 residents. By the end of the decade, the number of cars had almost tripled, with one for every four and a half residents. Sanguine about the inevitable battle between parents and their children that such significant and rapid changes created, Emily agreed with correspondents who thought it unrealistic for a mother to expect her daughter not to do what all her friends were doing with the new freedoms they'd been handed, including going on late-night dates that ended with goodbyes said in the car. That December, Time magazine published a slightly smug review of the new edition of Etiquette. The writer summed up the genre as he saw it. The idea, a dictionary of etiquette for 1928. The motive, to tell those who do not set standards what is being done by those who do. The Washington Post was more flattering, believing the new edition important enough to be reviewed on Christmas Day. The customs and manners of a people, decidedly, change with the times, the article observed, and Emily Post's revisions neatly illustrated radical changes in the conduct of men and women since the early 20s. Young girls, for instance, now did pretty much whatever they wanted, the review pointed out, a change that had caused Etiquette's 1922 chapter, The Chaperone and Other Conventions, to be replaced with The Vanishing Chaperone and Other Lost Conventions. This revised edition included instructions for a woman to go out alone with a man. Such a shift in emphasis exemplified the wind of women's independence, the Post opined. Even more important than the trials of the newly liberated flapper were the fears of housewives who had read the 1922 edition and become totally confounded about what to them was a major issue, how to give a formal dinner party without the staff Emily assumed readers had. Trying to host a dinner based on the descriptions in Etiquette, women readers had frequently failed. They lacked the butlers that seemed pivotal to formal entertaining, and so they wrote to the author, earnestly wondering, what shall I do? 
How could they entertain with the requisite style and grace, though lacking six or eight servants? Emily had been so impressed with the deluge of mail on this topic that by the end of 1922 she had already devised a solution, and now she included it in the newly revised etiquette. Mrs. Three-in-One, the hostess, cook, and waitress— Pondering the anxious letters, she had invited six friends to dine with her and Bruce in their apartment. From this experience came her story of dinner with the Top Loftleys, the Gildings, and the Worldlies, all of them delighted by their hostess's ingenuity. Emily admitted that the efficient Mrs. Three-in-One she created did employ a kitchen helper. Nonetheless, the menu didn't depend on such luxuries. Emily's main course was chicken hash. For a surprise, there was ice cream cranked earlier in the dessert freezer, which she cheerfully concealed under her chair. At the end of the meal, reaching below and extracting the finale caused a mild sensation, with her guests clapping delightedly. Essentially the ambassador of a highly organized method that enabled food to be served from the head of the table, Mrs. Three-in-One, following her formal debut in 1927, would become almost as much a part of etiquette's iconography as its royal blue cover. Mrs. Three-in-One represented a huge leap of Emily Post's imagination. In the five years since her book had made its debut, Emily had come to realize that the issues that resonated most deeply with her readers had to do with their insecurity over class. Now she was taking into consideration more fully the amorphous group striving to always belong to the chimerical, all-knowing group they believed would validate them. This middle class, its economic and social status fluctuating along with its definition, feared above all else looking ignorant. Thus, with respect and aplomb, Emily gracefully explained what Josephine would have thought beneath her daughter, how service pieces were used, where they were set on the table, how to talk to servants if they were lucky enough to afford them. She had come to realize that the lack of savoir-faire displayed by Bruce Price's newly rich customers, such as George Gould and his family, was not idiosyncratic after all. The very notion of the middle class was starting to refer to desire, to the effort to become upwardly mobile. Being rich, as the prices had always known, was not in and of itself a virtue. Though sensitive to her audience's anxieties, Emily urged her readers to exchange confidence for ill-placed alarm. One of the fears expressed time and again in letters from readers is that of making a mistake in selecting the right table implements or in knowing how to use one that is unfamiliar in shape. In the first place, queerly shaped pieces of flat silver contrived for purposes known only to their designers have no place on a well-appointed table. Etiquette is founded on tradition and has no rules concerning eccentricities. In the second place, the choice of an implement is entirely unimportant, a trifling detail which people of high social position care nothing about. Dan, I just love hearing the description of things changing right off the bat, right from the very first edition. Emily was already thinking about how to make adjustments based on the responses she was getting from her her letters. And I know that we feel the same way about how we work with this material now in 2022. And it was really delicious to kind of dive into the creation of Mrs. Three-in-One and to, to, to kind of 
learn when in Emily's life that juicy quote about, you know, the utensil matters not. Nobody cares about this, even though it's a whole book about this. Yeah, no. <laughs> sort of where that came from. <laughs> this has got to be one of the best readings from Claridge. And I'm f- <laughs> familiar with it because of the description of Miss Three in One. Yeah. And like Laura Claridge herself, I find the creation of Miss Three in One to be one of the the most telling examples in the development and evolution of the the book etiquette in terms of how it changed, how it was revised, and how it met the needs of the people that were reading it, and and how Emily recognized that. And I so appreciated your introduction to this reading, talking about this being the first major revision and sort of what that showed and what that taught and what an important moment it was for Emily and for the tradition. And I've also just got to um, pat you on the back and applaud your pronunciation of the word chimerical, which I am <laughs> going to have to figure out how to fit into something I'm writing or a conversation I'm having at some point in the next year. And word. it's not going to be easy. I also couldn't help but wonder, knowing that Emily's son had died sort of while she was working on this particular edition, if that didn't have some kind of influence towards her valuing young people mm-hmm. and, and valuing youth and, and knowing that her son p- passed in his youth, it just it, it was a part of it that, you know, it was a small portion of, of that beginning of the reading. And for the first time, it made me wonder if maybe that's a little bit where some of her look to the young people for the answers came from. I also know her father instilled a lot of that in her by paying a lot of attention to her and and really developing her curiosity and things like that. Lizzie Post, thank you for that reading. You warned us that it was a little long. It was worth every second. (laughs) I'm so, so glad. (laughs) If you're interested in hearing more, please do take a look at Laura Claridge's Emily Post, Daughter of the Gilded Age, Mistress of American Manners. It is the best biography out there on Emily Post. Everybody tells me to be more thoughtful. Well, I'd like to be more thoughtful. If I only knew what it meant. We like to end our show on a high note, so we turn to you to hear about the good etiquette you're seeing and experiencing out in the world, and that can come in so many forms. Today we have a salute from Emma. Hi, awesome etiquette. I'd like to send a quick salute to my coworkers. We have a small little staff that still works in the office, and everyone was so thoughtful during the holidays. They brought in treats, left notes for people who worked holidays, to let others have day off, etc. It's always nice to know you're appreciated, especially during a time when lots of people are with family, and I can't be with mine. Best, Emma. Oh, Emma, that's so nice. And I think you're right when when you have that moment where sort of the whole team pulls together and a few people volunteer. Dan, I'll never forget you volunteering to like watch the media requests over a holiday break where I was often the one trying to like get as far away from work as possible and how that encouraged me. And I I, I sense some of that here with Emma and that she's really grateful for the coworkers either who recognized her stepping up or other coworkers who stepped up during the holidays to keep things functioning. We all know stories about Grinches. It's so nice to hear stories about that holiday cheer working and making everyone feel good. <laughs> thank you for sharing this, Emma. And thank you for listening today. 
And thank you to everyone who sent us something and everyone who supports us on Substack. Please connect with us, share this show with your friends, family, and coworkers, however you like to share podcasts. You can send us your next question, piece of feedback, or salute by email to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. You can leave us a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. On Twitter, we are at Emily Post Inst. On Instagram, we are at Emily Post Institute. And on Facebook, we are the Emily Post Institute. If you're looking for a way to support this show other than engaging with our amazing sponsors, please consider becoming a sustaining member by visiting us at emilypost.substack.com. You can also subscribe to the ads version of our show on Spotify or your favorite podcast app. And please consider leaving us a review. It is a great way to help our show ranking, which is going to help more people find awesome etiquette. Our show is edited by Chris Albertine, an assistant produced by Bridget Dowd. Thanks, Thanks Chris, Chris and Bridget. And Bridget. <laughs> <laughs>